As you're opening to uh, 1 Samuel 17, another book recommendation, one of the points that I made when we started last night is that for the last 40 or 50 years, our young people coming up have been systematically taught to think like victims. They have instilled and inculcated the victim mentality in our young people. And one thing about victims is they mask their insecurity with false bravado. They often mask it by being a control freak. Um, they mask it by uh, trying to dominate various areas of life. And <clears throat> essentially, and in many ways, um, they're not always the same, they become a bully. So Robert Giuliano has written a book called Cry Bullies. Cry Bullies, the guy's t-shirt says, I am a victim. All of you have been affected to some degree by this because the cry bully will let you know that what you say, what you believe, what you do has deeply hurt them, affected their life, they'll never be the same, or on the political scale, uh, they will gather together to overwhelm you, silence you, um, you know, deplatform you, whatever they can do. So this guy essentially teaches you how to deal with cry bullies and when they come up with their tactic, whatever it may be, how to respond and basically cut their feet out from under them. So I always just preferred the simple approach, just a good swift punch in the nose usually <laughs> takes care of the problem, but he's a little more diplomatic. So cry bullies, this is up here if you'd like to look at it, you may find it interesting. I'm going to try the impossible. I'm going to try to get through two sessions in the 40 minutes that I've got left. So I want to deal with David and the confrontation of Goliath. And as I said in the last class, when you get to the fight, it's too late to get ready for the fight. I gave you one of Sun Tzu's quotes, which was flow like water. Uh, his other quote is, battles are won or lost before the battle. You either win before you go to battle or you're going to lose. And this is exactly what we see here with David and again with Jesus in Gethsemane. So David has now set his heart to take on the uncircumcised Philistine that is threatening the armies of the living God. And David has to fight three battles before he takes on Goliath. And you'll be familiar, familiar with these, I'm sure, in your own life. So let me just offer a quick word of prayer and we will launch into it. Once again, Father, uh, the music that we've just been singing just uh, rouses us and stirs us to realize how great, how mighty, how wonderful, how gracious our Lord and Savior really is. And I just pray that we'll grow deeper in our understanding and appreciation of who he is and all that he has done for us and continues to do for us day by day as we walk in fellowship with him. So open your word to us and nourish our souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
David had to fight three battles. His first battle is found here in verse 28 with his brother. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and insolence of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. Well, if David hadn't shown up, there would be no battle. No, how long did Goliath challenge the Israelite army? 40 days. For 40 days, he's been throwing down the gauntlet and no one would go out and fight him. David had to win the battle of his oldest brother's scorn and contempt. If he had reacted emotionally, he would have lost the battle. If he had reacted subjectively, he would have lost the battle. How would that defeat have manifested itself? He would have started defending himself. Oh no, I took care of the sheep. There's a good caretaker taking care of them. By the way, you know, our father is the one who sent me here and I came here to bring you supplies and on and on and on. And one of the lessons that you and I need to learn is that there are people that don't deserve an answer. Proverbs tells us, Two things, never answer a fool. And the second part is answer a fool as a fool. So either don't answer at all or give an answer that shows that you realize this guy is a fool. And so David won this battle. His second battle comes later as David comes to King Saul as his challenge was reported to Saul. And in verse 32, he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now you can imagine David, this little short stripling of a guy, probably very slender. Uh, he'd been living out in the wilderness, uh, very probably suntanned, uh, but you know, young, small, slender. Saul looks at him and uh, Saul said to David, verse 33, you are not able. Now, here's Saul who's not able, telling David he's not able. You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth. I would put David to the best estimates here, somewhere between 15, 18 years old, depending on how old he was at the point where he was anointed, we don't really know, but uh, he's a youth. The Hebrews actually had eight different words for the stages of development. Uh, this would put him uh, in his late teens somewhere. So you're a youth, you are not able to face him. And uh, David responds, here he's answering the fool as a fool. You are not able. Uh, oh, well, by the way, while I was out there taking care of my father's sheep, I killed a lion and a bear. Now, <clears throat> there are stories in the history of the United States of men who killed grizzly bears with a knife. A few years ago up in Alaska, there was a 68-year-old man that shot a deer the bears up there take the sound of a gunshot like a dinner bell. So this grizzly comes running. The guy is skinning the deer that he killed. And for those of you that don't know, deer in Alaska only exist close to the coast, not in the interior. Um, so here he is skinning the deer and a cold feeling came over him. His gun was 
about 10 feet away from him, leaning against a log. And he looks up and he's facing a female 750 pound grizzly. And all he has in his hand, this is not a buck, but it'll do for illustration, is a knife with a four inch blade. He had a folding buck knife that he was skinning the deer with. The bear attacked. And they must have had an awesome battle because I saw the picture of the ground where it took place and it was like every shrub, every blade of grass, everything had been just torn up. As the bear came at him, he fetted his left arm and he began stabbing and slicing at the neck. They fought, he said it threw him around like a terrier would a rat. They fought for quite some time. Finally, they were both exhausted. The bear is bleeding by this time out the mouth and the nose. It lets go of him and backs off. And he said, by this time I was mad. <laughs> and I won't say exactly what he said, but it rhymes with itch. He said, come on. And the bear charged again. And he killed it. So it does happen. But Saul had never done that. David is able to relate back to not what he did, but what God had done for him. Notice what he says. David said to Saul, verse 34, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it. Now that would take a quite a bit of courage by itself. And I struck it and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Here's the use of that rod that we mentioned earlier. Your servant has killed both lion and bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Here's the key. Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, I just want to stop here long enough to ask you a question. Are you humble? If you say yes, you're not. Are you courageous? If you say yes, you're not. You can evaluate people very, very quickly by what they say or present themselves as. But if you know you're not humble, and need to be humble, you're humble. If you know that you're scared to death, but there's a mission that you have to accomplish, now you have courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is a willingness to do what needs to be done in spite of your fear. My dad taught me how to face, not just me, but all of us kids, things that we were terrified of, he had a tactic. And that was, there was nothing we could face that scared us as much as him. <laughs> so he taught us again and again and again, you can be scared to death. John Wayne said it best. Courage is when you're scared to death and you saddle up anyway. And I'm sure every warrior in this room, everyone that served in the military, Everybody that's been on the front lines, you know exactly what that means. So David relies on past deliverance by God. He's won the battle of his brother's scorn, 
And in a sense, Saul here is holding him in a dismissive attitude. He wins that battle. And then he comes to his third battle. Verse 38, so Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Now remember, Saul is what? Head and shoulders above everyone in his country. We don't know how tall he was, but I would put him probably around 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, Big, tall, strapping, strong man. He has armor that fits him. And he's putting it on this guy. I would put David around probably 5'7". Can you imagine? So he's got his breastplate on here and it comes to his knees, right? He's got his helmet on, but it's rattling all around his head. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I can't even walk. How am I going to fight? I have not tested them. So David took them off. This is his third battle. And his third battle here is a battle against false help. Beware of those who come to you and say, I'm here to help. Even worse, the most scary, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> that you should be absolutely terrified of. But there's a thing that I've learned through the years there are those that I call hitchhikers. What hitchhikers do, hitchhikers are Christians who see God beginning to use someone and beginning to work in and through them and they see the dynamic of the Spirit of God and they come running because they want to latch onto you. They're a hitchhiker. They'll possibly start giving you all kinds of ideas of how you can do it better. Uh, they'll start trying to give you all kinds of counsel because they know. But if you look at their record, you can tell they don't really know at all. It's very easy to be an expert in things, but you can't do them. When I was called to Australia to pastor the church over there, a guy came along that I had met previously on trips over there, and uh, he was convinced that God had really wanted him to take that church and not me, and he was kind of taking me to task for taking away his church, which they wouldn't have called him in a million years. But he knew that he was the guy that should have been there. So the next step then is, now I'm going to tell you how to deal with these people. They're hitchhikers. Watch out for hitchhikers. This is what Saul's doing right here. He's trying to dress David in his armor so that when it's all over, what's Saul going to say? You know, he'd never won if he didn't have my armor. The victory really belongs to me. I mean, he did a pretty good job, but he, he wouldn't have survived if I hadn't given him the armor. And so David, of course, wins this battle. He took his staff in his hand. He chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. He put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch that he had. He took his sling in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. Philistine came and began drawing near to David. The man who bore the shield went before him. I won't bother to read the whole thing. David said to the Philistine in verse 45, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is David's shield. How many times in the Psalms does he say, the Lord is my shield? 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and I will take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that David's great. Right? And I got that problem of differing translations again. <laughs> that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. If we had 10 men like this in America, we would change the course of history. God only needs a few. We'll find out that Jonathan understood that principle. So it was when the Philistine, verse 48, arose and came and drew near to David. David slow walked his way up to meet the giant. No, he ran to meet him. Once the talk is over and once the battle is engaged, it's time to fight. You know, it's like you see things all the time. I'm sure you see them as well of attacks on the street. And uh, it always starts with a lot of talking. Somebody's bad-mouthing you, talking trash to you, and then it starts with a little bit of shoving. And then you'll see the video of the guy that knows what's going on. I saw one video of a guy standing there, and this guy's up in his face, and he's poking him in the chest, and he's doing this, and he's just standing there, and they go, bam! The guy's out. Out cold. When the battle's on, it's on. And David ran to him, put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the earth. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. I know you have all heard this story and you know, learned many, many lessons. I'm not gonna to try to develop all the things that could be developed. Verse 50 says, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So he ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him, cut off his head. The Philistines saw their champion was dead. They fled. And then, of course, everybody in the army of Israel got brave. And they all pursued. And they went home telling their wives about the great victory that they had won that day. But you know the song that came out of the battle over in chapter 18, verse 8, or verse 7, sorry. So the women sang as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. I'm not going to turn to the passage, but I want you to think about Luke 22. Again, you have all the notes. Please use them. Make my putting together of them worthwhile. In Luke 22, 39 through 46, Jesus was facing the greatest battle in history. We tend to think the cross was the great battle, but he had to win this battle before he could win that one. Jesus had asked for the prayers of his disciples. We read that in Matthew 26, 38, and warned them against temptation, the temptation being what? To fail to pray. One of the greatest temptations we have is we say, well, let's try this and let's try this and let's try this. Well, I guess the last thing we can do is pray. Well, that ought to be the first thing. 
So he warns them against temptation. His natural desire was to avoid the judgment of the cross. The very fact that Luke records that angels came and ministered to him tells us not only did the disciples let him down, not only does he have a natural dread of the cross, but he is waging a spiritual war against unseen fallen angelic hosts. This is the epic battle of history. So intense was the battle that he, as Luke puts it, sweat as it were great drops of blood. The intensity of the inner struggle had an outer manifestation. But as with David, if you don't win the battle on the inside, you're going to lose the battle on the outside. Jesus' victory in the inner spiritual struggle, which, by the way, no human being can comprehend the intensity of that, is fully displayed when he rises with poise and peace to go face the cross. What had he won? He won the battle of disappointment over his disciples' indifference. He won the battle of self-will over his desire to avoid the cross. He won the tremendous assault of fallen evil forces seeking to instill fear. And he won the battle of complete surrender and he went to the cross with complete poise and self-control. What a hero. No one in history will ever compare to him. Each of these lessons, by the way, ends with quotes. I love quotes. Good quotes are worth reading. I love the Italian proverb that says, it's better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. We have become sheep. The world has largely become sheep. You know, every year in Australia, they have Anzac Day. ANZAC stands for Australia, New Zealand, Army Corps. The ANZACs fought with us in every war and every battle that we have ever been in. Their role has always been downplayed. When we were fighting in Iraq, the most dangerous area was Anbar province. Thousands and thousands of enemy troops were there. They sent in 200 Australian SAS soldiers, and they won the whole area. You never read about them, you never hear about them, and if you talk to the guys who have fought, they don't expect to ever gain any recognition or notice at all. They go, they do the job, and they come back home. In the battles of Gallipoli, the Anzacs were thrown again and again and again at the Turkish forces. They lost huge numbers. And so every year on Anzac Day, they remember those lives that were lost on Gallipoli. And you know what? If those guys could come back and look at Australia today, they would weep in shame just like America's soldiers from World War II, we haven't won a war since then. Not because we can't, because it's been planned that way. 
to develop in us a defeated mentality. Could they come back today and see us and someone tells us we can't speak our mind? We have no First Amendment right. We have to give up our Second Amendment rights. We have to give up the Fourth Amendment rights to justice. We have to give up all of these rights. They would weep in absolute shame and despair at what's happened to this country. We need a revival of the revolution, revolutionary mentality. We need to become revolutionaries again. And I'm not saying go out and do something stupid. I'm saying you're not a sheep. You should be a lion. You don't do something just because the government tells you you have to do it. They say, now here's the hard thing. You need to travel from point A to point B. You've got to get on a plane. You can't get on the plane without a mask, right? I saw a beautiful example of one guy that refused to be a sheep on a plane in Australia, which they still have the mask mandate. He was sitting right next to me. The hostess kept coming back saying, sir, you have to put a mask on. He said, no, I don't. She said, sir, it's a law. You have to have a mask. And he said, no, it's a mandate. Doesn't mean anything. Sir, you're endangering the other people around you. He said, well, statistics show that the people that are breathing through their mask are actually more at danger than the people that are breathing. And he had an answer for everything and she got so frustrated, she finally left him alone. He's a hero. But we need to regain that attitude and live our lives with a little more courage. Let's move to Psalm 133 as we get into the contrast between loyal love and duplicity. Loyalty and duplicity. Oh, I was going to tell you a little tactic. Here's a tactic. Am I humble? You can ask yourself these questions. This is like an exercise. It's like going to the gym, pumping iron, going out and running, whatever. This is the spiritual exercise. Am I humble? No, I'm really not. What I'm not tells me what I need to be. What I'm not should drive me to be what I ought to be. Am I courageous? No, I'm really not. I'm fearful. Can I look ahead in the future and see the things that are coming on this country in total poise, peace, and calm? No, I can't. I think about what it's going to mean to my children. I think about what it's going to mean to my grandchildren and all the others. If I'm fearful, then what does it tell me? It tells me where I need to go. It's a signpost saying you need to take a right turn here, you need to head in the right direction, and you need to begin to building and developing that courage. And it's a challenge for us all to evaluate ourselves according to the standard that we should reach. But here we have loyalty versus duplicity, and loyalty is one of our most important characteristics that we need to reflect in Psalm 133, very short psalm, it's one of the songs of ascent. This is what they would sing as they were going up to the Passover. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And one of the things that I'm so thankful for in our Friday night class, as well as our local church there in uh, Prescott, it's almost on the line between Prescott and Prescott Valley, there is a unity and a harmony, and I hope you get this, that doesn't mean you all have to think the same way. 
There is an attitude that destroys churches that if you don't see this verse like I see it, you're wrong. That's a destructive mentality. We should know from Ephesians chapter 4 that our unity is based on what God has done for us, not what we think about it. Our unity is based on what we have in Christ. Our unity is based on the fact that every single one of us is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our ability to look on one another as more important than ourselves is because we see them not as the bumbling idiot they may be. Not as the person who always makes mistakes, which they may do. But to be able to look at that person that irritates you, aggravates you, interrupts your poise and your calm, and say this is someone that was worthy enough that Christ died for them. Loved enough by God that he sought them and saved them, and now risen and seated with Christ at the right hand of God. It's, it's simply, again, winning the spiritual battle within. So, how pleasant. I love to walk in to my Friday night class. You know why? Because we have unity. And you know what? We don't all agree. We don't all see everything exactly the same way. And you know what? That's okay. You know why? Because if you're bullied so that everybody holds the same opinion, who's ever going to be challenged? Who's ever going to be refined? You know how you sharpen a knife blade? You put it on a whetstone. And there's friction. When Paul says provoke one another to love and good deeds, you know what the word provoke means? It means friction and heat. Provocation brings sparks. And that's good. Because that's how iron sharpens iron as one brother sharpens another. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to embrace people who are fundamentally wrong on the absolute essentials of Scripture or of a gospel story. We know those, they're absolute, and they're not up for discussion. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Why is that important? Because that's when he was anointed to be the high priest who would be the go-between between God and men. And that anointing oil that set him apart introduced him into a ministry to do what? Bring God and men together. And as high and as precious as that task was, we have something greater. We have a greater anointing. And that is the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ because there is only one God and one mediator between God and men and that is the man, Christ Jesus. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. If you live in a desert land, dew is a precious commodity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore, everlasting life. What are we talking about here? We're talking about loyalty. 
Without loyalty, there is no genuine hum uh, unity. How many of you, you don't need to raise your hands, this is a rhetorical question. You ever have someone you thought was a good friend stab you in the back? You ever have somebody that said, hey, I'll, no matter whatever happens, I'll be there. You ever have somebody say, don't worry, I've got your six. I'll guard you, I'll protect you, and then you feel the knife and they're the one that put it in? Most of you have had that experience. Why does it happen? No loyalty. Loyalty is there, and how important in marriage, even when you let the other party down. Loyalty is there even when you fail. Jonathan's loyalty to David was that kind of loyalty. So the contrast here is between the loyalty of Jonathan and the duplicity of Michal. We'll just very quickly touch uh, back again to 1 Samuel 18. <clears throat> After David had finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Aren't we commanded to do that with everyone? Love your neighbor as yourself. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So now David is a part of the royal retinue. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. He became commander of the army. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I want you to know what Jonathan did here. Jonathan gave David three significant gifts. First of all, the robe, which was the symbol of his royalty. In essence, and this is why I said earlier, I believe by this time, everyone had heard the story of Samuel anointing David because in essence, what Jonathan is saying is, you are the rightful owner of this robe. This robe identifies me as a member of the royal family. This robe identifies me as the heir apparent to the throne it rightfully belongs to you. Not only his robe, but his sword. If you go back to chapter 13 and verse 22, you'll find out how precious a gift this was. There were only two swords in all of Israel. Saul had one, Jonathan had one. Why was that? Because the Philistines had imposed weapons control on the children of Israel. So he gave him his sword and then his bow, which was Jonathan's favorite weapon. David's tribute to Jonathan after Jonathan died in 2 Samuel 1.18 was to write the song of the bow. It was basically a training manual put to music to teach the children of Israel how to use Jonathan's favorite weapon, which was the bow. Jonathan would have been present on the two occasions that David spared Saul in the wilderness in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. How shamed he must have been over his father's continual slide into demonic oppression. Jonathan's loyalty to David was fully reciprocated by David. David wrote in 2 Samuel 1.26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. 
say, oh, there's something gay going on here. Believe it or not, the obnoxious gays often point to this verse to prove that David and Jonathan were involved in a homosexual relationship. I wish David and Jonathan could come back <laughs> and wreak vengeance on those that would so slander them. How many men do we have in here who've been in combat? Nobody here? Ken, you have actually off the coast of Vietnam. I think Ken gave the last order for the Marines to fix bayonets. He'll have to tell you that story. When you go to war, Joe, you and Margie will know this. When you go to war and you develop the bond that warriors develop, and actually you don't have to go to war, you can go through terrible trying circumstances in life. Every husband and wife should be ranger buddies. Every one of us should have a ranger buddy. Every one of us should have someone whose loyalty we would never question. Now, granted, there are people you trust like that, they'll knife you in the back. One guy said a good woman will help her husband reload, but a great woman will take a knife and slit his enemy's throat. That's loyalty. That's ranger buddy. If you ever talk to anybody who has been through combat or through terrible and trying circumstances, I'm talking here about two guys. They read this statement by David and they know exactly what he's talking about. There is a love, there is a bond, there's a connection, there's a commitment that can only be formed under fire. I've not been in combat. I'm saying this from the many, many people I know who have been there. And they feel about those they lost. And they feel about those that are living exactly like David speaks here. And when you can see grown, strong, courageous, skillful warriors and watch them break down and weep like a baby. You'll understand what David's saying. There is nothing perverted in it at all. But I quote it just to show that it was not a one-way commitment or covenant. They shared it together. This is the loyalty Jonathan had for David. But what about Michal? Well, Michal loved David. That's what we're told. 1 Samuel 18, verse 20, Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told David, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, this shows a lot about his thinking, I'll give her to him, that she may become a snare to him. She's going to be like the enemy in the camp that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David second, a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And if you remember the story, he said, all I want by way of dowry is the foreskin of a hundred Philistines. So David went out and killed 200. Yeah, you might as well prove yourself. Show how thankful you are to marry the king's daughter. 
But why did Michal love David and with what kind of love? Well, you notice that she loved David after his great victory. And she loved David when the young women were singing songs. It's kind of like Gus in Lonesome Dove. When he and Call are riding out of San Antonio, and Call says, well, I guess they must have forgot who we are. Gus says, well, of course they forgot us. We haven't been around for a long time. And then he says, if the Comanches had surrounded us, a thousand Comanches surrounded us and killed us in some gully somewhere, they'd have been singing songs about us for a hundred years. And of course, Call never did quite get where Gus was coming from. And he said, hell, there ain't never been a thousand Comanches in one place anyway. And he says, Call, you just don't get it. But the point being, remembrance, victory, love, loyalty. Why did she love him? She loved him because he was a winner and he was popular. And nine times out of 10, well, no, I'll say 10 times out of 10, when we fall in love, we're out of line. We're out of line. Falling in love is emotion. Falling in love is subjectivity. Oh, look, he's so handsome. Oh, look, he's a great victor. Oh, look, he's a great musician. Oh, I'll, I'll quote you from an expert. Any of you ever know a singer by the name of Santana? Santana was in an interview one time. They were asking him about the music and the popularity and, and the fans that, you know, and all the girls that flooded the, the concerts and so on and so forth. Santana was very honest. This is what he said. When I play my music and sing, it touches their soul. They think it's me. What they don't realize is I can never do for them what the music does for them. Think about that. It's not me. I can't do for them what the music does for them. You know what that said to me? And I heard that many, many years ago and it just clicked. It's the same way it is with a pastor. When you speak the word of God in the power of the spirit of God and it touches people's souls, they give you the credit. And they shouldn't. Because all of us fall so far from what we ought to be. None of us are the teacher or the communicator of the word. You ask someone, are you a great teacher? Yeah, I'm a great teacher. Well, he's not. None of us are. We are all so far from what we ought to know, from where we ought to be. We keep aiming at that mountaintop and we keep thinking that we're almost there. But if you ever climbed a mountain, you realize you can see the top, there it is. You're exhausted, you're weary, but you're finally at the top. And when you get over that rise, what do you see? It keeps going up. So you go to the next horizon, you find out it's higher still. And that's what it's all about. No musician can do for you what the music does. No pastor can do for you what the message does. 
because it's not him. If it's touching your soul at all, it's the spirit of God by the grace of God using the word of God to do spiritual surgery on your soul. And credit must be given where credit's due. Belongs to the Lord. Never belongs to man. So McCall's off to a bad start. She loved David, but her love is fickle. Later in 1 Samuel chapter 19, if you'll turn with me, Saul is going to kill David. He sends people out to have him killed. David flees with Michal's help. But in verse 17, when Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal answered Saul and said, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? She slandered David. She maligned his character. And then later on, you see her true fickleness. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. In the meantime, while David's fleeing in the wilderness, 10 to 15 years he was in the wilderness, Saul gives Michal to another man. And then when David finally, following God's plan and purpose for his life, wins the victory and becomes the king, he demands that his wife be brought back to him. Michal comes back to him. And then the day comes when they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And you remember that David was dancing with absolute ecstasy that the Ark was coming because they associated the presence of God with the Ark. And the Ark is coming into Jerusalem and he's out there in the street just absolutely ecstatic. McCall looks out the window and sees him. Verse 13, and so it was, those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, they sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep, and David danced before the Lord. He's oblivious to anyone around him. Have you ever been caught up in such a, ecstasy is really the only word I can use, that you could care less? Who sees, who cares, what they think doesn't even matter. You are captivated. And I see this oftentimes in church and in people. And, you know, some people may express it in different ways, but it's like they're oblivious to everyone around them. When I sing that song, Behold Our God, everybody's gone. There he is. Behold him. And you just, you're not worried about how you look. David and all the house of Israel, verse 15, brought up the ark of the Lord, shouting to the sound of the trumpet. Michal, Saul's daughter, looks through the window. David returns to bless his household, verse 20. Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how glorious was the king of Israel. This is all scornful, by the way. Sarcasm. In the eyes of the maids of the servants. In other words, oh yeah, the women were really getting excited about your dancing, one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. That's what you've done, is what she's implying. David says in verse 22, I'll even be more undignified than this and humble in my own sight. As for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The greatest shame. And I don't know 
if she had no children because God made her barren or if she had no children because David was done with her. She scorned, maligned, and treated him with contempt. You say, oh, but wait, she loved him. You know, it's kind of like women that let a man beat him around and you ask them why they put up with him and they say, well, he says he loves me. That's why you got a black eye. You know what they say about a woman that has two black eyes? She didn't listen the first time. <laughs> Sorry about that one. Every once in a while I have to give you a commercial, a little commercial break. What kind of love did she have? Duplicitous love. Duplicitous. Loyalty or duplicity? How do you love? How do we show the love of Christ? Is it really loyalty or is it duplicity? Is it just while it's convenient? Is it just when it's easy? Or is it really loyal? Jonathan refused to stand by when his father maligned David. He spoke up. He paid for it. His father even tried to kill him. We allow the name of Christ to be blasphemed around us every day. And we stand silent. You know what my conclusion of this study is? Shame on us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for the things we learn. Thank you for the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm praying that when I walk out of this conference, I'll be a better man than I was when I walked in. And my prayer that each one of us will be a little bit closer to the goal that you have set before us. Above all, teach us to be humble. Teach us to be loyal. Teach us to hate all that is the opposite of what you would have us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.